Welcome to the College Scoops Podcast. I'm your host, Moira McCullough, and today we are talking with Sarah Cavallari on what to know if you are even thinking of applying to college overseas. But when it comes to the actual admissions piece, it's a lot more academic fit. So do they have the academic background to study the program that they're applying for at a high level for three or four years? My colleagues and I, we like to joke that in the U.S., they're looking at a student's heart, but overseas, they're looking at a student's brain. So This is the College Scoops Podcast, and I'm your host, Moira McCullough. We focus on everything college-related, from the admissions process to where to eat, stay, and explore on and around campuses. Our guests include founders, educators, authors, and experts in the college space. Join us as these experts share their knowledge, experiences, and lessons learned to help you have stress-free, informative, and tasty college journeys. Whether it's your first or last child going to college, or you're just interested in going to a college town for a game or meal, we've got you covered. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the College Scoops podcast to get the inside scoops on everything college-related, and leave us a review. Thanks to all of our sponsors, partners, and the entire College Scoops Ambassador team for helping us bring valuable content to our community. If you would like to support College Scoops as a sponsor, please head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash college scoops and sign up as a sustaining listener, insider, or deluxe sponsor. We have exclusive benefits for our members, free eBooks, and even a College Scoops care package. Sarah Cavallari is the founder of College Apps Abroad and is a San Diego-based educational consultant specializing in helping students apply for college or graduate programs overseas in places like the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and beyond. She has more than 10 years of experience working in international recruitment and admissions for some of the world's top universities, including the University of Edinburgh in the UK and the University of New South Wales in Australia. With firsthand experience as an international student herself, she also has spent a decade studying, living, and working on four different continents and is a huge proponent of international education. Welcome to the College Scoops podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks. Well, we met at the HECA conference, which was really nice. I always end up meeting so many nice people. And it's even though you're not in person, we were able to meet each other face to face. And then I kind of was traveling through all your memories, like as you were describing what you do and how you studied overseas, I felt this immediate connection. I'm like, wait a minute, I want to talk to you offline about so many things. But I know with so many students applying to colleges overseas now that our audience would greatly benefit from your expertise. So that is why you're here today. Yeah, I'm really happy to share. It's been a long journey for me. I feel like I've lived 10 lives in 10 years. So yeah, happy to share any info I can. I studied abroad as well, but what what led you to, what was the impetus for you studying abroad and then continuing that journey by working over there for international colleges and universities? Yeah, how much time do you have? It's a long story, (laughs) but I'll give you the cliff notes. Basically, so I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, kind of a sheltered life. You know, a lot of people in the Midwest don't have passports. So 
For me, I think it was my aunt took me to London when I was in high school. And I realized that there's a whole world out there waiting to be discovered. Having said that, I didn't even think that I could go to college overseas at that stage. So when I was applying, I just you know did the normal thing, ended up at Ohio University to study journalism. But while I was there, I happened to go to a study abroad fair and realized that I could do part of my degree overseas and not lose any time and have those credits transfer back. So I ended up at Adelaide, Australia. And while I was there, my study abroad advisor from Ohio flew over to visit the campus and meet with the, um, with the university there and, and check in with the students. And I remember thinking, wow, that is so cool. She gets to travel for work. Like what a dream job and internationally as well. So I didn't really think too much more of it at that stage. I was kind of you know, on the path to, to becoming a sports reporter, which were like my two passions at the time, sports and writing. So I graduated realized that I preferred watching sports without having to write an article and be under pressure. So I was like, I don't think this is really for me. Decided to go to law school, maybe I'll be a sports agent. And then the summer before I had gotten accepted to a few different law schools, the summer before I thought to myself, I don't know if this is really what I want to do. So I decided to take a gap year in Ireland and the UK just to kind of explore my interests and, and do more travel and meet new people. And then while I was there, I was like, why don't I work in, in education, international education? I mean, that's a dream job to be able to help students kind of have a similar experience to what I had. So came back to the U.S., started applying for master's programs overseas, ended up back in Australia in Sydney to do a master of education. And then I ended up staying in Australia for five years after that, working for various universities in recruitment and admissions. Happened to meet a, a Brazilian while I was there and moved to Brazil with him and got married and lived there for four years, but continuing to work for the University of Western Australia while I was there. And then ultimately moved back to the U.S. in 2018 to work for the University of Edinburgh as their regional rep in the U.S. And then after all the, that experience in mind, I thought, why don't I become a consultant? Because I've worked for UK universities, for Australian universities. I've lived in so many different countries. So why not kind of bring all that knowledge together and, and help as many students as I can? And here we are today. In San Diego, no less. Exactly, <laughs> so another yeah. really, really great area and really place that many, just many people would love to be able My to live, visit or work in. My husband was like, we are not moving to Ohio. He's from the warm climate. He needs a beach. And also San Diego happens to be the sister city of Perth, Australia, which is where I spent most of my time. Okay. Um, so it was like the closest I could get to being in Australia without actually being there. Okay. I love that. That's right. When, when we first met as well, I mentioned that my son was studying overseas in Sydney and unfortunately he had to come back and it was maybe three days before we were supposed to go over and visit him. And I had these grand plans of like everything I was in it pack into that two weeks but that's so I, disappointing and and I never knew sister city like there you go you learn something yeah. new every day San Diego and Perth there you, yeah I love this I'm traveling <laughs> that then again my mind is already off on like 10 other <laughs> questions that's what happened so, oh my goodness so in terms of when you were actually working at University of Edinburgh in the states like what are some of the things that you looked for from students that expressed a desire to study overseas? Because there's so many, I mean, culturally, there's so much to think about academically and then planning that admissions aspect. But what were some of the things that you would look for in candidates and also recommend to candidates who are looking? 
Yeah, I think there's two sides of it. One, I, I can always usually tell when I'm speaking to students whether they would do well studying overseas for an entire program. And, and that's students that are quite independent, um, quite self-motivated, confident. That's not to say that students who aren't confident won't do well, but it's a big deal to be placed into a different culture where you're not familiar. So students that kind of already have that sense of independence tend to, to do well off the bat. But when it comes to the actual admissions piece, it's a lot more academic fit. So do they have the academic background to study the program that they're applying for at a high level for three or four years? I, my colleagues and I, we like to joke that in the U.S., they're looking at a student's heart, but overseas, they're looking at a student's brain. So they're pretty much just concerned about do they have the right testing scores, the right GPA, and the right prerequisite subjects to, to get into that program. And that's basically because Degrees are shorter, so in most cases, there it's a three-year degree. Scotland's a little bit different. It's four years there, but there aren't any general education requirements. So you don't have those kind of first two years of, of the broad education to make sure you're still kind of interested in your subject. Overseas, you're jumping straight into your field and, and graduating faster. So the universities want to see that you are passionate about the area. So you've you can demonstrate that you took some subjects at a higher level, so like APs or the IB curriculum, and that you'll be able to do well academically in that program. Okay, so there's a lot there to unpack. So the first thing is culturally, and I can totally appreciate that in terms of even in colleges as a parent of three kids going through it, we fall into the trap of finding a school that we think our students would love. And then you really have to sit back and say, wait a minute, is this the right fit for them? And to your point, when I studied overseas, I remember I stayed with a host family in France and I could not speak fluent French to them. And so the level of French that I was at and living with a French family, I felt like I wanted to quit after the first week. And it took a lot of reason. You yeah. stuck it out, right? I did. And dinner time was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have a glass of water for, I think the first week because I had to ask for it, you know, that type of thing. But you're right in terms of a, when you're in missions, looking at the student to make sure it's really their choice and that they want to go and they have a curiosity of learning of culture of different people and that they know it's going to be challenging. So that's a cultural fit, but then academically. So you mentioned so many things because a lot of people wouldn't know that Scotland's a four-year program, but other programs are three-year. And also you're going for specific major or program of study. So to your point, it's not like a liberal arts over here. If you want to study engineering, it's a very specific track. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I and mean, there are a few liberal arts programs popping up in the UK, just because I think a, a lot of universities realize it's hard for a student of that age to determine their career and their future. Um, so the other thing that I would suggest is, um, you know, for students that really don't know what they want to study is having a look at an American university abroad because they offer the, the liberal arts curriculum. But anywhere else, you're applying directly to a program and not the overall university. So a lot of schools have individual admissions teams for that faculty. So they're looking for those very specific things. So if you're applying to engineering, as you said, they're wanting to see prerequisite calculus, those prerequisite subjects that prove that you're ready for a program at this level. So let's look at Edinburgh and University of St. Andrews. Those are popular kind of places that a lot of students go to. What are the normal tracks that students are in, Americans that are going to those schools? What typically do they apply to? 
a lot of humanities, I would say, um, okay. international relations, history, politics, computer science is really growing. It's become really competitive program at Edinburgh, informatics as well. But I would say by and large, it tends to be the humanities based subjects. So if you're applying there for humanities, you're saying, okay, it's, it's either you're accepted or rejected. It's not as if, okay, you go into the other pool of candidates. Correct. There's no okay. kind of wait list. They might offer you an alternative program. So let's say international relations is full. They do get a lot of applications for that program. They might offer history. So it's, it's slightly similar, but it's different enough to where you could be made an alternative offer. There's no wait list option like, to see if students accept or not. Quite different. So that's the first thing. So you're looking at culture first, then you're looking at program of study. In terms of testing, and the other aspects of the college application that are different from the US. Can you walk us through that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Most universities aren't test optional. We saw a lot of US universities go that route during COVID. Unfortunately, it hasn't been the same overseas just because a lot of universities view the US high school diploma as not equivalent to their local system. So students need to have testing to, in order to prove that they're ready to study at that level. It really depends on the country. So Australia, New Zealand, for example, it's pretty much just an SAT or ACT. A lot of times they won't look at your GPA. There's no essays, there's no recommendation letters. A lot of times it's a free application and you're hearing back within a couple of weeks. So I would say very easy application process there. In the UK, slightly different. So there's a much bigger emphasis on AP exams. In the past, universities were considering SAT subject tests in place of those APs, but unfortunately the SAT subject tests are no more. I know um, a lot of US counselors were really happy when those were, when it was announced that those were going away. But for me, I was like, oh no, this is this is not good because you know a lot of people don't have access to APs or they realize too late in their degree that they want to apply to the UK and, and there's no way to get those APs. They either wouldn't be accepted or they would have to do what's called a foundation year, which is basically a year of prep in order to get admitted to the actual program. But a lot of students, they don't wanna do the foundation year. They just wanna go straight into the program. So they're very disappointed to find out that they did need APs. But a lot of universities will also look at SAT or ACT in addition to APs. But generally, if you have three APs, that's enough to get into a university in the UK. Okay, so a couple of things. One, the testing optional that has now been extended for many schools, that's not an option at all. It is at some, some universities that have a big presence in the U.S. that have recruited a lot of U.S. students in the past. They have been able to be more flexible recently to go test optional, but it is, I could probably can't count on two hands the number of universities that are, would just look at your GPA. But I have seen a trend to universities looking more at honors classes in place of one AP. So potentially students could have two APs plus an honors class. It really just depends. Uh, it's a case-by-case -case basis from university to university. And even within the university, each particular program has their own entry requirements. So it's basically a program level sometimes. And do they have, so you were the University of Edinburgh rep, so I'm in, interested in humanities or something. Do you put prospective families in touch with different admissions representatives of that program that they could talk to? Are there interviews that are offered at all 
at any level? At Edinburgh, for example, there's a rep-based in the U.S. It used to be an office in New York as well. The North America team is fantastic at making sure that the process is transparent for students. So all the entry requirements are on the website. And this is the case for most of the universities as well. But if there's a question, you can reach out to the North American team and they'll let you know whether a student has a good chance or not. They can also contact admissions directly. There's a specific admissions email. Yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of afraid to reach out to the reps themselves, but that, you know, there isn't a such thing as demonstrated interest overseas. So it, they're not kind of keeping track of how many times you contact them. If you set up a Zoom call with, with one of the reps, it's not an interview. So it doesn't affect your admissions at all. It's really just a fact-finding mission. So in terms of interviews, there's really only interviews for the really competitive programs like veterinary medicine, medicine, that sort of thing, but everything else, it's just a straight application in which the most important things are your academics, so your testing, your personal statement, and the reference. So those three things, that's it. All we've been hearing here is, you know, demonstrated interest, how many times you can get on that website. <laughs> students can save so much time. Like I still encourage students to, to go to the virtual fairs and try to get as much information as they can so they can make a, a, an educated decision. A lot of the students can't visit campuses as well, but not having that pressure of having to engage with everybody at the same time, it's, it's quite relieving. Absolutely. And then they have everything online. So it's clear in terms of what the criteria is for applying. But you mentioned something earlier in terms of the response time. Is it a rolling application process? So in most cases, universities overseas do have rolling admissions. It really varies. So like I said, with Australia and New Zealand, they're pretty quick at getting back to students in the UK. It depends on the university. Um, I know this year with COVID and you know a lot of staff working from home, it wasn't as quick as usual. So the application in the UK opens in September. I always encourage students to apply in September when admissions isn't as busy and chances are they would have their offers before Christmas, maybe weeks even sooner than that. But definitely for, for American students, you want to apply before January 15th. That's kind of the equal consideration deadline. It means that if you apply, your, your application will definitely be considered. After that, a lot of programs tend to close and they won't accept more applications. Technically, you can apply up to the end of June, but again, a lot of those programs may already be closed. Okay, so that is something that really, when you're working with students now in your current educational consulting role, again, different criteria and mindset, you, you need to really think about this junior spring and right. then by the summer, get everything ready so that September you're applying and the good news is you could be done if it all works out exactly um, before anyone else has applied to ED. Yeah, I, I, I try to get the students to front load as much of the work as they can. So um, with my junior class now, we're, we're kind of finalizing the list of, of, of colleges that they'll apply to. With the UK, you can only apply to, to five choices. So it's a little bit different than in the US where students are applying for 20 schools sometimes. And then over the summer, I think it's a really good idea to just kind of work on that personal statement, get that finalized so that when applications open in September, everything's ready to go. So you mentioned, can you walk through for, for us, the, when you say the UK, you're only allowed to apply for five, that is a single application platform yep. that allows you? Yep, exactly. Can you walk so, us through um, that? 
Absolutely. So in the UK, the, the platform that you apply through is called UCAS. It's basically like the common app for the UK. They just revamped it for this year. So it's a lot more user-friendly. I think a lot of people got confused in the past because it wasn't very pretty and some of the terminology wasn't international student friendly. So with UCAS, you get to apply for five choices. That's it. Whether it's Three, three choices at Edinburgh or two choices somewhere else, you only get five choices in total. So you do have to be a little bit focused in terms of what you're applying for. The other tip I would say is you'd want to apply for programs that are similar because you only get one personal statement, which is kind of nice, you know, for students in the U.S. that have loads of supplementals to write and, and this essay and that essay. There's only one essay for for the UK and it's it goes to all five choices. So with that as well, you wouldn't want to say, oh, I'm really interested in applying to Edinburgh because then St. Andrews is going to read that. Like, okay, she really doesn't want to go, go here. So I love the system. I think it's great. A lot of times people get intimidated by it, but I think it's it's a lot easier than applying in the US. Well, I think it's almost like you're sharing who you truly are and it's more about expressing, okay, here's what Sarah's all about, and this is what makes you a curious learner, and this is what you're looking for overall, both in and out of the classroom, versus cut and paste some, I don't know, maybe it's not authentic or not genuine essays for certain schools that you're just tweaking just because you think they might want to hear that you say XYZ for this particular university. Yeah, so exactly. I think it's a more organic and more honest. Yeah, it's almost like a letter of motivation in a sense that you're you're talking about why you're passionate about the subject area and not why you're really unique as a person. The other thing, I guess, with, with admissions that's quite different is that extracurriculars don't really come into play. It's not something that's as big overseas unless your extracurricular is relevant to the degree that you're applying for. The example that I usually give is for a student that's applying to a medicine program, and medicine can be applied for straight from high school. So another difference there, you wouldn't want to talk about how you're the world's best piano player, unless you could directly link the fact that playing the piano gives you dexterity that will help you as a surgeon or something like that. So you really have to link everything to the field that you're applying for and why you're passionate about that area. So when you mentioned something about applying to Edinburgh, like three, you're allowed five, is that five schools or programs? So five, are you saying one? Yeah. So I could, I could apply to three different programs at Edinburgh and that's, mm-hmm. and then I'm only allowed two more applications because they're applications for programs, exactly. not necessarily school specific. Yeah. Okay. And I don't, I don't recommend applying for more than one program at a school just because like I said, um, it, it, a lot of times it's about keeping communication lines open with the admissions office. So let's say you didn't get accepted to that program, get in touch with them, say, is there an alternative program that you would consider me for? Sometimes they automatically just do that and, and give you an acceptance letter to a different program already. So I don't recommend wasting the, the choices on three Edinburgh programs. I think it's better to, to try five different schools and just kind of expanding your chances there. Absolutely. That's for the UK. So Australia, is that different? Like if you were applying to New South Wales, where you used to work and University of Sydney, two separate? Two separate. Uh, So there's no central portal in Australia. So you're applying to each individual university on its own, unless you're an Australian or New Zealand citizen. So if you've got the passport, doesn't matter if you've never lived there or never stepped foot, you qualify to be a domestic student and the fees are like $6,000. 
for all the Aussies and Kiwis out there, it might be worth looking to, to go back there. But yeah, unless, unless you have the passport, it's a direct application. And I think there's only one Australian university that's on the Common App. And I think that's Monash, but everyone else okay. direct application. And then for the American universities abroad, you're applying to those specific universities and that would be their own application as well or a different portal for that? Yeah, most, most of them are on the Common App too. Okay. So a couple of different questions. We talked a little bit about the expense in terms of how much less universities are. Is that the same like in the UK if students are applying? And again, I'm going to go back to, let's say we mentioned Scotland was four years. So that's similar to, to the US, but King's College, is that three years or the yeah. Australian universities three years? So yeah, exactly. So um, outside of Scotland, the degrees are typically three years. Some programs um, in Australia that are law or some of the professional programs that would be four or more. But in the UK, excluding Scotland, you also have the chance to add a year abroad or a year in industry. So you could go to one of the partner institutions on exchange or work in an internship in a company locally or, or overseas as well. And that would add the fourth year option to that. But if you're not doing either of those options, then yes, the degree would just be three years. And then I heard recently about the Trinity College and how they have a partnership. Some of these international universities are having two and two programs with U.S. schools. Can you talk a little bit about that and how students might apply to those type of programs? And is it more strategic to apply to Columbia or is it Trinity Dublin? I've heard that it's easier to get into the dual degree with Trinity and Columbia than just to get into Columbia, but I think it's a great experience. You get two degrees from two institutions in four years, so it makes you look very competitive in the job market. Having said that, one thing to consider is you do need to be a bit resilient because you're living in a place for two years, getting adjusted, and then all of a sudden you're being uprooted and thrown into kind of a new environment as well, which is great for the independence aspect and adapting and you know facing challenges but at the same time it's can be really difficult because you you fall in love with the place and you make your circle of friends and then all of a sudden you're you're leaving faster than you expected so definitely worth considering the type of experience that that you want to have well definitely when we used to live overseas our big joke was the first year is the hardest the second you start to reap the benefits and then you'll see a lot of people leave during that second year and it's the getting over the hump. It's a third year where then you really get to have fun and you're settled and everything like that. But the two plus two, as you said, you're not, you're not settled long enough to make a home per se, yeah, or you have to so go in there with the right frame of mind that you're going to go after it. And every single day is going to be a new journey. Yeah. And you'll also be with a cohort as well. So you won't be the only one that'll be doing that. So it's worth keeping that in mind too. In terms of other parts of the campus experience, so once you get like housing, and I know that um, it's not like they have parents weekend, do they, Sarah? <laughs> no, I mean, unless the mom decides to, to drop in unexpectedly, <laughs> it's right. slightly different campus culture. But, but it, it, that, that's something that students should be aware of as well, just because of the fact that from what I'm told, and please clarify for us, the fact that they don't hear from parents and sports are not big. You're getting a different campus experience than you would at a U.S. university. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the biggest differences are one, there is no Greek life, no fraternities, no sororities. Some students, that's 
exactly why they want to go overseas just to get away from that. Also the sports aspect, definitely more of a participation culture. So people love to play sports at universities overseas and there'll be social sports. There'll be more competitive performance sports as well, but you're not going to have hundred thousand people coming and, and watching your game. So if you really wanted that rah-rah football weekend kind of experience, that's not going to, to exist overseas, but you have the, the local sports teams overseas as well. So like in Australia, there's there's cricket, there's rugby, there's Australian rules football. In in the UK, you've got the Premier League. So there's lots of other teams that you can go and, and support and have that kind of experience in a slightly different way. You mentioned housing as well. That's also a really interesting point overseas. There's no roommate culture. So students will have their own rooms, sometimes their own bathroom, usually shared cooking facilities as well. So it's a lot more independent living. And usually housing is guaranteed for international students for the first year. And then after that, students would typically move off campus and, and get a flat with, with friends. Um, also, I think it's worth managing expectations because you know we've all seen the the fantastic dining halls here in the U.S., like loads of options overseas. Um, not all universities even offer meal plans, but if they do, it's it, it can be pretty much just one building and set hours where you can go in and have a meal and it's, it's not as fancy. I think that's one thing that kind of shocks students sometimes. So it's worth managing expectations. A lot of students will, will cook for themselves. So if, if students are independent and, and wanting to do that, they have that option too. Well, I would also then caution that in terms of financially, that needs to be factored in to the cost of attendance, because that could add up pretty quickly. As we know, going out every night, you could blow through your monthly allowance pretty quickly if you took that route versus buying and cooking for yourself. Correct. One other thing I should mention, though, speaking about finances, is that usually students in most countries, you're able to work part time during your your program. And if you're staying over summer, you're you're able to work full time. Australia, New Zealand, for example, the minimum wage is like 20 something dollars. So it's quite high. And the exchange rate is good for Americans as well. So it's just a, a good opportunity to to get some extra pocket money to help pay for trips or or going to restaurants and things like that. Usually you can only work about 20 hours a week, but there's no restrictions in terms of, you know, working on campus or working in a local coffee shop. I generally recommend students not to start working in that first year, just to focus on getting adjusted and settling into the new life and the studies, because it's quite a different academic system as well. Once you feel comfortable, then maybe the second year, look for a part-time job. Do they help you on the part-time jobs? Is that something that the school helps students with? Or is that really, again, being like self-motivated and advocating for yourself and going out and finding that on your own? I would say the latter. Universities, they do have career centers. So there are often part-time jobs available um, that the career centers are aware of. They can definitely help students kind of sort out their their CVs and prepare, you know, if they if they were undergoing an interview or whatnot. But I think for the most part, it's just a matter of the student going out and going into various places and just handing out their CV and and seeing if they're looking for workers. Well, you talked about career centers. That's probably a different concept as well in those universities. 
Many countries do have a post-study work visa. So if students, after they graduate, if they wanted to stay, they'd be able to apply for a visa between one and three years, depending on the country. A lot of times students will go to the, the career service and just get help preparing for the interview, getting the, the local CV, because every country has a different kind of culture in terms of, of applying for jobs. I know in Australia, when you're applying for a, kind of a more professional type of work, it's a really long application process. You have to put your CV in, you have to put your cover letter, and then answer a huge number of questions sometimes. And it's it's hard, it's hard to, to apply. So the career services is great. They often run career fairs as well, bringing companies from all around the world. At New South Wales, where I studied my for my master's, they had a, a fair specific for international students. So companies that were coming directly to recruit the internationals. And that's the other thing, when we talked about a little bit about the differences in, in the campus experience with clubs, there's not like 300 clubs that you can choose from at some of these schools. Yeah, yes. Most okay. of them have, have between 200 and 300 clubs. Um, that's kind of the main way for students to get involved on campus and meet friends. And I did this really well personally as an undergrad, but when I went overseas for my grad program, I don't know, I was just really focused on the academic side of things and, and doing well. And I didn't get involved at all. And I really feel like my social experience suffered. So I think that that clubs and societies are, are the best way for students to, to form those friendships, especially if they're over there on their own. And you've mentioned academic a couple of times. And I just know from way back when going over and studying a semester over there, I was at a really good high, high school. I was at a really good you know college as well. But academically, I felt like I wasn't there yet. It was really, really hard. So is that something that you definitely caution students with? I mean, you're, you may have been in an honors econ class here in the States, but I think it's more rigorous over there. Or is that not correct? I don't know if it's more rigorous. I think it's just different. And like you, uh, I, I don't think that I was really prepared for how different the academic style was in the teaching style as well. So in the U.S., I feel like a lot of times professors are kind of hand-holding students, checking in and finding out like, why weren't you in class? That sort of thing. Whereas overseas, it, you're, it's very much independent learning. So you'll have a lecture. You'll also have probably a tutorial or a seminar, which is smaller groups. And that's kind of really where you have your discussions and, and group projects and whatnot. But I found if I wasn't keeping up with the readings, nobody was on my back telling me, you need to be reading this. So you're in class a lot less. And I just remember thinking, wow, I have so much free time. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do this and do that. But I wasn't keeping up with the readings. And I found at the end of the semester, I suffered because there's a lot bigger emphasis on the final. So it can often be worth 60% of your semester grade. You'll have fewer assessments, fewer time in class, as I said. So if you're, if you're feeling like you're struggling, it's really up to you to reach out. And the professors are lovely. They have office hours. You can go in and ask for help, but it's really about asking for help. And that's one thing that I didn't figure out right away. And the other difference, I guess, is in terms of grading, where in the U.S. we're so used to kind of, you know, being the best and getting the A+. But A pluses are quite rare overseas. And in fact, I remember getting a credit in Australia which is like, it was a 60%. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I really bombed this paper. And they're like, my classmates are like, a credit is great. Like you did well, you should be happy with that. So I think it's just kind of managing expectations and, and just 
accepting the fact that you're not going to get A pluses on everything. It's, so it's, it's, it's a completely different teaching environment. Having said that, they, they do a really good job in orientation of preparing students academically for what to expect. There's writing workshops, but it's up to the student to go and make use of those. They're not going to force you to, to go to those sessions. So that's, that's a great point as well in terms of the orientation. So do they offer that? Is it optional? And you would definitely with your students recommend or to any student listening, if you get accepted to one of these schools, if they have the orientation program, go. Like that's a no brainer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a no brainer. I mean, orientation is a great time to meet other students as well, just because, you know, a lot of times they'll have kind of fairs with all the clubs out there talking about things that they can join. You'll be in sessions grouped with your academic subjects. So you'll get to meet people from that subject area. You'll have the more general sessions as well. Sometimes there's sessions specific to, to international students. So it is so valuable to go. It's usually about a week long. And I think that students who do attend orientation end up adjusting much quicker and doing much better than those that kind of just come and, and jump straight into the academic side of things. And is it offered right before school? Because again, we're looking at a cost factor, like, you know, right. we're it's here, usually, it's kind of rolling. Yeah, it's usually here. a week before the, the classes start. Okay. And then I, I know when my son applied, and this was for, you know, a semester abroad, but University of Sydney, then they, a couple of the schools and University of New South Wales, they had you know, a surf camp that they offered for students yes. beforehand. And I remember him saying, no, I'm not going to spend it. It's just too much. And I thought you have to like, yes, that's a no brainer. And he met a whole host of students from different, from University of New South Wales, which was great because then they all meet up afterwards at this kind of same places where they go to Bondi beach for this, you know, Sundays or whatever it is. But is that something else that they yeah. offer before absolutely yeah so a lot of times there's organized trips sometimes there's clubs specific for international students or even north american societies so it's a kind of a nice i know at edinburgh they're a north american society they they put on like thanksgiving dinner they have fourth of july parties just to kind of make you feel more at home to your point as well i think you know a lot of times students think oh i don't i don't want to spend the money and, and go on this trip but it is so important those are the, the places where you really form those friendships and you know you're you're going all the way over there why not just just go for it you know absolutely last thing in terms of finances you also we i think can you talk about fafsa like some people may think oh it's not we can't apply it overseas but you can get aid and you can use FAFSA overseas for certain schools or for? You can. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There are a number of international universities that are FAFSA approved. I want to say it's around 300 or so. So students can take out direct loans to help cover the costs of their tuition and, and living expenses. Having said that, the Pell grants or any other form of grants, they don't apply. It's U.S. only, but the loan okay. portion is eligible as long as the, the school is FAFSA approved. And there's a website that has a, a database of all those schools that are updated, I think, quarterly. But personally, I when I went to do my grad program in Australia, I took out FAFSA loans to go to New South Wales, ended up staying in Australia, working because of the high salaries there and the exchange rate at the time. I was able to pay off my grad loans and my, my remaining undergrad loans in just one year. So I still have friends that are still paying it off, but you know, it was such that's a good impressive. deal. It was, that's it was really amazing. impressive. <laughs> Every parent is like trying to, you know, take notes on that front. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the thing you kind of have to look at, you know, the tuition's often lower, 
check out the, the, um, the exchange rate. Many universities offer merit-based scholarships. So when you, when you factor it all together, including a, a three-year degree, so that's a, a, you know, a one whole year that you're not having to pay living costs and tuition, um, a lot of times it does come out to be way in your favor to, to go overseas. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was a wealth of information. Unbelievable. I, I, I'm already thinking about where I'm going to apply for school. I'm, I have my MBA, but why not go back for my PhD? Why not? Happy to help too. If you, if you help. Exactly. I may have to book a session with you. <laughs> what do you wish you knew before you attended college? I, I wish I knew um, that overseas universities, you don't have to do general education requirements. So I personally hate math. Had I known that I wouldn't have to do statistics or anything like that in, as part of a journalism degree, I would have absolutely gone overseas because I was really passionate about writing and maybe I would, I would still be working in journalism had I just gone straight into it rather than, you know, because pretty much it was just my, my junior and senior year that I was taking the journalism classes. And this was a while ago. So, you know, this was at a time when you could specialize in broadcast and online journalism was just a, an elective that you could do. Whereas now it's like, it's all digital. So I think just had I known that, you know, I didn't have to look within my own borders, I think life would be different. But having said that, I am who I am because of my experiences. So that's fine. And you did. I think you've done so much that, you know, I think you turned out okay, Sarah. I think. I think so. <laughs> Not bad. We're all about food here. Any, any places that you would recommend if students were on a college campus at one of the ones that you've worked at or, or attended or have been to that you would recommend? Yeah, I guess I, would, I have two answers for this question. The first one, I, um, the University of Edinburgh's campus, there's a place, Colt Express, Colt Espresso, perhaps. They have amazing porridge, which is like oatmeal, but better. It, they do it really well with berries and, and whatnot. So I, I, that, that place stuck out in my mind. Besides that, I would say I'm a, I'm a big coffee drinker. After living in Australia, they have the best coffee. So I kind of judge campuses based on where I can get a good coffee. That's what I'm always on the lookout for. And my favorite coffee place on a campus is happens to be in Perth, Australia. So you have to go quite far to, to find it, but it's a place called the 10th State. They do amazing coffee. They give you a little panda cookie as well. And it's also a, a little shop. The things that they sell it changes on a regular basis. It's very hipster and trendy, kind of whatever they, they find. But it's so cool. Every time you go in there, it's a different experience, different things to look at, different food and desserts that they offer as well. But best coffee, in my opinion. Well, I love coffee too, but I love a sweet. So anyone who's going to give me a cup of coffee with a cookie, <laughs> has, is, I'm all over that. <laughs> yes, it's the best. Oh my goodness, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today and providing this wealth of information. It just makes you realize though that as a, as a student thinking about it, you, you, it just can't come to you, you know, or it would be easier if you thought about this at least junior year yeah. rather than, you know, all of a sudden adding it to your list in October, November of senior year. Exactly. The best advice I could give students is just start early. I'm working with some freshmen now, and it's amazing that they've already decided that they want to go overseas, but they'll be in the best position because they've been able to plan the right curriculum. They've been able to plan kind of mentally. Um, they, they'll be hopefully be able to visit some campuses as well. I know it's really hard to choose a, a university without visiting, but most, most do. So yeah, best advice, just, just start early in your planning. Sarah, in terms of with COVID and what's 
with a lot of the campus on campus programming was non-existent this year in terms of Australia and the UK what's changed and are they open to on-campus visits yeah really good question at the moment Australia and New Zealand are closed they've been closed for more than a year now they're not likely to welcome visitors until 2022 at this stage even Australian and New Zealand citizens are having a hard time getting home on the other hand the UK is hopefully reopening international travel on May 17th, depending on kind of what happens. They're putting in a traffic light system. So if your country is on the green list, you won't have to quarantine. You just have to test before you depart and also two day, up to two days after you arrive. With the rate that the U.S. has been vaccinating people, it's, it's hoped that the U.S. will be on the green list. For students that, that went last year, they were always able to arrive. There would just be a quarantine requirement in place, but hopefully that quarantine won't exist anymore. And then for schooling, and once they're there, is it as of now, or do you, in terms of a hybrid scenario, or was it virtual in your room? Because that's another big question for students in terms of making sure it's the right fit, if that's not gonna be an option for a year. Yeah, it's pretty much mostly been hybrid. So large lectures online and then the tutorials or seminars in person. Not sure what's going to happen this fall. I think it really depends what happens over the summer, but I would expect maybe a bit of hybrid and, until we're fully out of this. Right, perfect. Thank you. No Thank worries. you, Sarah, again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was fun. Thank you to Sarah for joining us today as we discussed all the nuances of applying to colleges overseas. If you have an inkling that you may want to study overseas, start the process earlier rather than later. The criteria for applying to universities overseas is very different from the U.S., and students need to plan accordingly. Admissions look at ACT and SAT test scores. There is no test optional. There are no interviews, recommendations, demonstrated interest, and supplemental essays required. In terms of affording tuition, international universities are far less expensive than U.S.-based colleges and you can use FAFSA. You can find all of our show notes and links to the helpful resources mentioned throughout our conversation on our website at collegescoops.com podcast. You can learn more about Sarah and College Apps Abroad at collegeappsabroad.com. Please take a couple of minutes to rate, review, and subscribe to College Scoops. Thank you for listening to our College Scoops podcast. Our entire College Scoops team strives to make the college journey a little bit easier, less stressful, fun, and tasty by sharing all the inside scoops we have curated along the way. We would love to hear from you about topics to cover and your ideas on everything college related. Reach out to us at collegescoops.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.